Okay, so um, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they all have the story of Jesus going into the garden to pray. And in, in, in this one, in Mark, they say he's sorrowful. And in this one, they say, the, you know, in Luke, they say the disciples are sorrowful. And, and there's a lot of different interesting details in the three different stories. And so all I did was I, I put them together. Hopefully, when he read it earlier, it made sense. Um, so I'm going to be referring to those. Um, we're not going to just be looking at one particular version of the story. We're going to be looking at, at the story as it's found in the Synoptic Gospels. But there's a few other verses I want us to keep in mind, um, sort of background for what we're talking about. One of them is Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 23. And Jesus said to all, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. <laughs> deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Another set of verses I want us to consider is from Philippians chapter 4, verses um, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we um, come before you now as your son came before you. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to understand this very difficult story. Your son, who knew your goodness, who was God himself, came and sweat blood. For he was so anxious and so sorrowful for what you were calling him to. And Father, we too are very often overcome by what you're calling us to. And Lord, we, we would like to take up our cross. And we would like to follow Jesus. And we pray, Father, that this morning you would teach us how to do that. We pray in the name of your Son and amen. Amen. So I was looking back over the last like six weeks or so, and Dean's sermons have been about um, prayer. He did three on prayer. He, last week he talked a lot about bearing your cross. Uh, he saw, did several sermons on religiosity and hip, hypocrisy and pharisaicalism. And so w when he and I were talking, we thought I would just come and summarize <laughs> everything. I was like, yeah, that was a good topic, and, uh, and that was a good topic, and uh, I'm going to just try to do all of them. Um, so this is sort of a capstone to what he's been doing. Last week, he really set it up nicely. He talked a lot about bearing your cross. But, but what is that? Right? Oh, okay, cool. Um, bear my cross. I, I, I have a nice house. I mean, I have a nice family. I haven't seen a cross. Has anyone ever seen a cross? Like, and where am I supposed to take it? Um, and if God is everywhere, so my son's raising his hand. He's seen crosses. And if I'm supposed to follow him, I mean, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's in heaven. Like, it's just kind of confusing if you think about it. So hopefully today we'll have some clarity on that subject. Now let me ask you guys a couple of questions. Have you ever had a rough day? <laughs> no. Okay, well, we're done. No. <laughs> have you ever had a day in which your efforts go thanklessly unnoticed? A day where your best laid plans were derailed by failure and hypocrisy? A day in which the people around you utterly and completely disappointed you. A day in which you know you are faced with a seemingly impossible task, 
and don't know how you are going to muster the strength to do it. Jesus and the apostles were having that kind of day. It's the end of the upper room discourse, the end of his last day with them before he is crucified. The last supper at this point has already come and gone. Jesus taught his thick-skulled disciples deep things about their loving father, about true leadership and hope for the whole world. But all his disciples could do would argue, was argue about who was the greatest. <laughs> He's talking about hope for, the whole, for all of humanity and the cosmos, and they're like, no, I'm greater. No, you're greater. I'm greater. They're arguing about it. They're not listening to him at all. They're already asleep. Jesus confronted the disciples with their own weaknesses. He told them, as specifically as he could, exactly what their weaknesses are, about the, their impending failures. And all he could do, or, or all he could receive from them was loudmouth bravado. I think you guys have all heard me talk a great deal about that, right? He's talking about how everyone's going to fall away, and suddenly Peter's the one vowing he's going to die for him. And we all know that that's not what Peter is going to go and do. Right? That night, Jesus had had his last meal, his last meal ever on earth. He set everything else aside. He's a convicted felon. He gets it. He eats his last meal with his friends. And all they can do is talk about how great they are. The apostles weren't doing much better than Jesus at this point. right? Jesus goes to the garden, and this is what's weighing down on him. All of these hopes, he's trying to wash their feet. He's telling them about the Father. He's telling them about the hope, and, and they're, they're just not with him. Again, they're already asleep long before they ever get to the garden. The, the apostles themselves actually aren't doing much better. It's less than a week after the triumphal entry. Their leader has silenced all opposition. The throne is all but theirs. But all Jesus can do is humiliate himself by washing feet like a slave ramble on about defeat and how none of them are actually great at all. <laughs> Jesus is such a pessimist. No one knows why he is so obsessed with his own defeat. He's here on the threshold of victory. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus controls the weather. Jesus can feed 5,000 people with a single loaf. This man is the man who can lead an army. <laughs> no weather will confront his army that he can't overcome his soldiers, he can just, you know, restart them like a video game as, as often as he needs for them to continue to fight. Nothing can stand in his way. What army could take Jesus on at this point, given all the miracles? These, if you think about it from their point of view, he's, he's, all these miracles show a commander that will never be defeated in the field. Endless supplies. Endless power. But Jesus doesn't seem very, very excited he seems pretty dour. And that's bumming them out. <laughs> bumming them out. Luke twenty two forty five says, the disciples are full of sorrow. Mark fourteen thirty four says, Jesus is full of sorrow. Jesus has a mount and a cross to climb. And he's made it very clear to them that they do too. They are all going to be tested. But will the disciples stand in the breach with Jesus? Or will they flee? and save themselves, abandoning their friend Jesus to certain death? Will Jesus himself flee, or will he stand? Will the, the disciples stand, or will they flee? There's a lot of questions going on here. Jesus himself is uncertain about what he's going to do. He's worried. 
that he's not going to be faithful to the end. They all have crosses to bear. They are all under the weight of stress and fear and uncertainty. And Jesus and his disciples respond in two very different ways. Will the disciples follow Jesus? Will they deny themselves and take up their crosses? For that kind of fight, there is only one approach. There is only one path to victory. Jesus has humbly washed feet and instituted a new covenant and is going to put his money where his mouth is. The disciples have bragged and boasted and declared their own greatness. These are the two paths. One preached humility and one's going to go do it. The other group bragged and boasted and declared how great they are and they're going to now definitely not show it. <laughs> right? They're going to go to sleep. These are the two paths. A lot of talk, a lot of flash and no substance and quiet humility full of substance. The disciples on the eve of their greatest test choose false comforts and rely on their own strength. Jesus, on the eve of his greatest test, chooses true comfort and relies on God's strength. There is only one way to bear a cross, and Jesus shows us how to do it, because he's called us to a life in which every day we must take up a cross. We need his example. We need his leadership. He practiced what he preached, humility, self-denial, reliance on his Father, and the question is, do we? So what we preach... How many of you guys have kids? How often do you tell them, be humble? Deny yourself. It's what you teach. It's what you preach. My question is, do you do it? Confronted with the cross of sin, guilt, grief, and humiliation, the cross of self-denial and obedience, Jesus turned to his Father in vulnerable humility and submission. Is that what we do? Love this wife as Christ loved you. Raise these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Make disciples of the nations. That's our cross to bear. That sin you're committing that is ruling your life, that's your cross to bear. Are you going to the Father in prayer? Is that, that's what we preach, right? When the cross comes, don't rely on yourself. Go to God. It's what we tell our kids. It's what we tell each other. Is that really what we're doing, though? Jesus commands us to bear a cross in Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We all have crosses to bear every day. This is not something that happened when you were baptized and you picked it up then when you got out of the water and you've been dragging it along ever ever since. He's very clear. There is a cross that stands before you every morning when you wake up. Right? It's like a tree that gets chopped down that grows back overnight like a magic tree. You get up, and there it is, the cross. So how? How do we do it? Every day. That's, that, I'm ready to close the book and go home now. Every day. That, I do not have the strength to even say that sentence again. Jesus says, bear your cross daily. There's a cross before you, and there are two approaches to it. So what we need to understand First off, before we get to the options of how to deal with it, is what it is. What is this cross that stands before us that we chop down and grows back? Jesus makes it clear that both he and his followers have a cross to bear. Throughout the Upper Room Discourses at the Last Supper on the eve of his crucifixion, throughout John 13 through 17, Jesus tells them that they will deny him, that Satan wants to sift them like wheat, 
that Jesus tells them all to watch and pray so that they do not enter into temptation. There are enemies afoot. There are things out there that are going to attack you, that are going to try to bring you down, that are going to try to distract you from your commander, that are going to try to get you to not listen to him and not obey him and to please yourself. He's talking to them about their enemies. Jesus had to endure a cross to save mankind, making it possible for all of us to bear our crosses daily and to follow him. Okay, so what, let's talk about the cross itself. Now, I find this to be fascinating, but Jesus actually tells them twice to bear their cross before he bears a cross. So we all know about the cross now, right? It's triumphant, right? I got one tattooed on my arm because I, I just want to look like a, you know, a real serious Christian. I got victory right here on the flesh. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's power to me. Because when I was converted, I thought, my, I always denied what I thought was true, and now my flesh can't even deny what right? It's there. And it's something that I look at and helps me. Now, that's not always what a cross is meant. That's what we're used to, right? Think of Christian churches, Christians in general. The cross is a powerful thing. But why does he tell them to bear it before it takes on that symbolism? Because it had its own symbolism before. And being first century Jews, they would have understood the symbolism of it. Here's a helpful commentator from Matthew 10.38. Okay, 10.38, he also tells them to bear their cross. I'm going to read what he writes here about the first century and the cross because it's very helpful to us to understand what it is Jesus is telling them to do. He, um, Christian readers have become so used to the cross as a word and a symbol and indeed a cause even for boasting in Galatians 6.4 that it is hard now to recapture the shudder that the word must have brought to a hearer in Galilee at the time. Crucifixion was a punishment favored by the Romans, but regarded with horror by most Jews, and was by now familiar in Roman Palestine as a form of execution for slaves and political rebels. It was thus not only the cruelest form of execution then in use, but it also carried the stigma of social disgrace when applied to a free person. To have a member of the family, even a member of the family, crucified was the ultimate shame. Pack up and leave town. Change your name. Witness protection. Someone in my family was crucified. It's that shaming. Crucifixion was an inescapable public fate. Public fate. And drew universal scorn and mockery, as we shall see in 27, chapter 27, 27 through 44. And that public disgrace, as well as physical suffering, began not when the condemned man was fixed to the cross, but with the equally public procession through the streets in which the victim had to carry the heavy cross piece of his own gibbet among the jeers and insults of the crowd. It, crucifixion is not something that happened in a corner. It's not like public execution now. Well, public ex execution in the United States happens in a dark room in the basement of a prison somewhere, and nobody has any idea that it's even occurred. Okay? Not here. No, you're going to drag that thing down the street. We're going to laugh at you. We're going to mock you. We're going to point at you. We're going to shame you. And then we're going to get up there, and we're going to nail you to that thing, and it's going to be painful, and it's going to be ugly. And then we're going to come, and we're going to make more fun of you while you're up there. And we're going to make fun of your mom while you're up there. We're going to belittle you and hate you and revile you as much as we possibly can, and everyone is going to see it. And so what does that have to do with the disciples? What does it mean for us to do that every day? That, that is very strange, right? We like the post-resurrection version of bearing the cross. I'm going to bear my victory, baby. I'm going to drag this thing down the street and everyone can cheer. No, 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 no. 
There's something that you have to bring out to the light, that you've got to drag down the street, and, and it's going to shame you. It's not going to be pleasant. And for us, it's sin. That's what it is. And you know it, because how many of you guys like to confess your sin publicly? I'm raising my hand. Oh, my son is raising his hand. I wish that were as true as he's making it seem right. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. We avoid this kind of public shame. But this is what he's talking about here. When you go and you tell someone that you lied to them, that is like being reviled in public. Because that person, in their eyes, what's going to happen? When you have to confess to your child right, that you were ignoring them on purpose because you were involved in your own thing and you just were not taking their concerns seriously and you have to confess that kind of thing to them, that's publicly shaming. Right? And the more public your sin, the more public your shame. Okay? He is not talking about dragging your victory down the street. He wants you to open the cupboards of your home and grab all that disgrace and guilt and shame and ugliness and bring it out and drag it down the road with you. Be as public with it as you possibly can because that's what is required if you're really going to confess it. Okay? If you sin against someone at work, whether they're a believer or not, should you confess it to them? If, okay, thank you, Nathan, shaking his head. Okay, I have to tell you, there's a person that won't even talk to me at work now because I did this. It was weird. And it was hard. And it was this. It was dragging that thing right down the middle of the office into the back room where they were. And just it felt like a public crucifixion. And it always does, doesn't it? And you've got to do it every day. So what Jesus had to endure once for all time is the lifestyle he's calling you to. Think about that for a moment. This whole episode is what he wants from you every day. We don't like transparent lies. We don't like vulnerability. We don't like to have to admit to anybody that we've done anything that would shame us or that would cause guilt or that would cause... Right? If we admit the sin, it breaks the relationship. I'm, I'm sorry, the sin already happened, and so the relationship is already affected. And now what you're doing is doubling down on the sin by not bringing it out. So you all have a cross to bear. Now, I know many of you well, and I know some of you not so well. Okay, And, I, and it, we're not going to get into specifics here, obviously. <laughs> I'm not going right? to... I was very worried people thought I was going to get like a whiteboard out from behind here and... <laughs> start drawing in the dirt like Jesus. Uh, No. Okay? But uh, just imagine for a moment if we broke up community groups by our indwelling sin. I'm actually for that idea. (laughs) Uh, We're still talking about it in in the elder meetings. Right? All the guys addicted to porn back in the corner. All the girls who are obsessed with their own um, image, with eating disorders down here in the front. Everyone who's a liar, everyone who steals, we're just going to divvy up into aisles. Hey, we could, and, and that's something that we don't talk about, right? We don't talk about that. Liars here? <laughs> this is where all the people come who are saved from all that lying. And yet, you do. You have a cross that's right there in front of you. Now, the problem here is many of us know what it is and don't want to climb on. 
Another very real problem is some of us just act like there's nothing. And so, again, we could divide up here into what our problem is. Some of us know and ignore it. Some of us have no idea and we don't want to know. But right? he, he's, he commands you, take it up every day and follow him. And so this is a tough choice. This is why Deuteronomy says, today I set before you life and death. This is why Hebrews says, take up the word of God, take up the gospel of Jesus Christ as long as it's called today, which is every day. This, this is what we don't want to deal with. This is what we can't cope with. Uh, right? We cannot cope with this. And so what we do, what we do is we, we take the disciple option. We take the false comfort. They're, they're both confronted by crosses. We're confronted by crosses, whether we know exactly what it is or not. And so instead of taking the Jesus option, we take the disciple option. Okay, so before I move on from this, I'm, when you confess something, you're saying the same thing. Okay, you're calling what you did what Jesus called it. And so we need to go on a name and claim it, right? Not, not the gospel of wealth version, but a name and claim the cross lifestyle change. What does Jesus call what you did? Not how do you justify it, what does he call it? And then once you've done that, you've got to actually deal with it. But we don't. We cope with it, don't we? Because that, now, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to say, these guys are tired. I, right? If I had to follow Jesus around doing all the different things that it says he does at the end of the Gospels, I would just be tired from that. Forget, like, the disappointment. Forget the sorrow. But, I mean, how many of you guys have been, like, totally fine physically, but sorrow comes and you're exhausted? I mean, the, what they're going through is, is a cacophony of bad. And they're tired. And I don't know about you, but it seems very easy, very reasonable even, to think, oh, I'm tired, and so what I'm going to do is sleep. But what does Jesus ask them to do? Come with me. Come with me on this journey. Let's, let's pray. Pray. Because the cross is coming, and we have to pick it up, and we have to walk, carry it down the street, and you're going to need real strength, and so what you should do is pray. But they choose false comforts. Burdened and confronted with spiritual warfare and their own weakness and vulnerability, the disciples attempt to gather strength for the coming fight their own way. So they go to sleep. As I've already said, I think they were already sleeping. Right Now they're just physically at rest like they're, they were spiritually at rest. And we all do this. The money doesn't add up, and so we hold up, withhold the tithe. The time doesn't add up, so we sleep in, in, in the morning, and we veg out in the evening. We have a few extra minutes at the end of a commute, and so what do we do? We stop and grab coffee, because that's what tired people do in Seattle is we get coffee. The energy doesn't add up, and so in the face of our spouse's need, we appeal to our need for sleep, for some time to relax. I have a headache. The resources don't add up, and so we'll wait to invite that family until our house is bigger or cleaner or nicer. Movies are easier to digest than books, aren't they? Right? I, Star Wars Rogue One, Jerry Bridges' uh, book about humility. I'm going to go with Rogue One. That seems way. <laughs> right? Add popcorn and a rum and coke, baby. That's sleep. That's rest. I'm ready to take on anything after that, right? 
this is, these are the choices we make. These, these are the choices we make. We know what's standing in front of us that we have to confront, and, we're, and, and we don't have the energy, and so what we do is we go looking around. Prayer is hard after the first 30 seconds. That's only if you work at it for a lot of years. The Bible is daunting. Christian music isn't as good as secular music. And what does music have to do with spirituality anyway? What is he even talking about at this point? Exactly my point. What does that have to do with anything, Mike? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about music and spiritual warfare, but I digress. For many, relaxing in modern culture means listening to podcasts and blunt force typing on social media, right? That's the added benefit if you get to surf Facebook and fight dragons because you're on there telling them how wicked they are. You won't believe what they did. That error. There's someone erring on the Internet. Drinking parties and random social gatherings are much easier to organize than psalm sings or book studies or times to gather as the saints of God to confess our sins. Why would we need to do that? Mike lets us do it for 45 seconds every Sunday morning. Me and God, right there. But don't worry, I'm not alone because everyone else is there doing it too. And so we feel like we're doing it as a group. <laughs> it's not what he meant in James. We think we need me time. Right? So we're just going to take a quick photo for the Instagram feed and then it'll look cats. And before you know it, an hour is gone. And the cross has doubled, tripled, quadrupled, hundredfold. Instead of the one, there's a lot now. We live in a culture, an economy, and a country where creaturely comforts are met. Does anyone here not own a fridge, a car, a bank account, a credit card, a roof? Well, your dad owns one, Isaiah, so you're fine. We live in a culture, an economy, and country based on the pursuit of pleasure, right? It's right there in our Constitution. Happiness, that's what they mean. And, and this is... This is where it gets dicey, because you've got to read Ezekiel 16. We, the church, are whores. And, and like Israel in Ezekiel 16, who takes all of the good things that God has given them and becomes a whore anyway, she's worse than a whore, like a regular prostitute because she pays the other people to be a whore. She takes the jewels that the Lord gave her and pays Assyria for comfort. She takes the bread that the Lord gave her and pays Egypt for comfort. Right? Look at your cell phone bill. Don't even get me started here. All of us, iPhones, Netflix, Amazon Prime, we pay to pant with our idols. We pay. It's not even like we're getting something out of it, like we're making them pay us. We're the worst kind of whores from Ezekiel. This is a church. These are people in modern Christianity who need to spend reading, spend their time reading the Old Testament prophets a great deal more than they do. Right? But what? No. The disciples are sleeping. Look at that. They're sleeping. What hypocrites? Do you want to call out a spiritual hypocrite? Do you want to? Get a church directory. Get a mirror. Another thing, when it comes to community, what are our excuses besides vanity and self-absorption? Right? Distance wasn't a problem for Jesus. Resources wasn't a problem for Jesus. Not having a nice house wasn't a problem for Jesus. Oh, but he was God, though. Yeah, 
And the whole point is he laid aside the things that made him God so he could come and struggle the same way you struggle. And so he knows all about it. Did the distance stop him? Did resources stop him? Did the unloveliness of people stop him? Where do we get off with all of our religiosity, all of our pharisaicalism, when we're just asleep at the wheel? We are napping. It's not a trick. Jesus struggled. Where is he right now while everybody else is sleeping? His eyes are looking to heaven, where help comes from. That's where he is. Jesus leaves the disciples and goes to his father. Jesus, too, is sorrowful. Jesus, too, is heavy laden. There is a cross before him, temptation before him, and so he goes into the garden of prayer to plant. In utter distress, Jesus turns to heaven and goes back three times. Because prayer is dogged. Prayer is routine. Prayer is consistent. Jesus asks the Father to remove the cup, to relieve and change the circumstances. Because prayer is vulnerable. Prayer is honest. Prayer is an open window to the soul. God's not going to think less of you because you tell him you can't do what he's told you to do. That's when he helps. Right? We, we, don't want to, we avoid mom and dad because we don't want them to know we didn't actually clean the bathroom. I don't, I don't have time to do that because I took too long on my homework because really I was on my phone. Right? That's us. I don't want to go and tell God I'm weak. He might find out I'm weak. <laughs> that would be terrible. Right? Because, I mean, look at my fig leaves. I'm so ready to just, this Christian life, I'm ready for it. I mean, this, this is where I get breakthroughs with people. The sins that you're committing, you like them, and you will do them, and you will like doing them. And unless you go to the Father and tell him that, there's no hope. I looked at it, I did it, I said it because it felt good, and I'll do it again unless you stop me. Unless there's an exchange, all I'm going to do is go do that. And unless you're willing to get there, you're asleep at the wheel. You're sleeping. You might as well go down the street to the church where they baptize you in whitewash. Because that's all you're doing. is whitewashing that life up. You go in the garden of prayer like Jesus here and you're vulnerable and you're open and you're honest and you put it all out there. I can't, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Jesus prays that the Father's will will supersede his own will. Because prayer is self-abandonment. Prayer is self-renunciation. Prayer is an exchange of God's life for yours. In the garden of prayer, we die to ourselves. And how does the Father respond to Jesus? Jesus' dogged, vulnerable, self-renouncing prayer. Am I supposed to point this? Still, they ruined my moment here. Which way do I point this? Don't tell Dean it went this badly. There we go. The disciples all go to sleep, and what happens to them? Are they comforted? Do they stand? 
Do they have the strength to go on? Jesus goes to the Father. What happens? And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Keep going, son. You're doing well. The comfort came, didn't it? Now, we have a greater benefit than this even because it's not an angel that comes. It's the Spirit of God that comes into our hearts, strengthening it, reinforcing it with cosmic divine steel so that it can endure the things that it has to endure. Comfort, enlivening, emboldening, enduring comfort comes from heaven. Jesus finds true comfort from heaven in the garden of prayer. Jesus is persistent. Jesus is vulnerable. Jesus is self-denouncing in prayer. And the comfort comes. Jesus rises from the blood-stained dirt at peace. There was a storm inside of him. And now there's peace. Now he's the storm. Wouldn't that be nice? Watch out, forest of crosses. Here I come. Right? He goes to the garden of prayer, and he comes out of it ready to face any cross. Jesus, his path is the path to victory over crosses. The disciples who comforted themselves with creaturely comforts, who slept while Christ prayed, they fall. They have no strength to stand because they are all full of themselves and the world. Do not pursue false comforts, my friends. Obedience in Christ requires the strength of Christ, and it is found in the garden of prayer. Feel your weakness. Feel your failure, your sorrow, the overwhelming weight. See the cross before you. Name it. Call it what it is. Confess it. Go to the garden of prayer and persistently, vulnerably confess to God that you cannot endure it, that you can't even lift it off the ground. Renounce yourself. Submit to the Lord's will and the comfort of heaven will overflow your heart and your hands and your very life. And it won't be a mere angel, but it will be the spirit of God himself. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand. Everyone hold up your hand and look at it. Come on, we're not Gnostics. Hold it up, look at it. How close is that to you? That's how close he is. Okay, don't read the Bible like Gnostics. When things like this happen, take a moment and think about what's being said. That's closer than a beer. That's closer than a pill bottle. That's closer than a TV changer. That's closer than my car. That's closer than a lot of things. And what's funny is he's actually closer than that even. But why would you ever turn to anything else? He's right here. Do not be anxious. Read the scriptures and let God's goodness get into your bones. 
Remember what he has already done for you. Jesus is the king of every molecule, every dollar, every day, every car, every sandwich, every person, and every second of our lives. It's all his. Don't be anxious. He's at the wheel. He's not sleeping. In prayer and supplication, give thanks. Now, this is really crucial here because I'm sure some of you through this whole sermon have been like, dude, I pray constantly. But what prayer is not is sitting down at your vending machine, God, putting your supplications in like quarters, pushing the letters and numbers of religion, hoping a treat comes out. Snickers. Because that's what prayer is to so many of us, right? We sit down and we just pump those quarters in, baby. Yeah. Bigger car, bigger fridge, bigger bank account. When you pray, give him thanks. Because he's, he, he's given you so many blessings. I can't. We stagger to describe them all, and we're spending them on the desires of our own flesh. So go to the garden of prayer and kneel down and thank him for the overflowing abundance of his grace. Okay, now, be honest and vulnerable, but always give thanks. Don't worry, I'm drawing to a close here. And the peace of God will billet in your heart. Now, I changed the word there because technically in Greek, this is a better translation. Billet. It's an old word many of us are not used to, but it's what the army used to do. They would imagine barracks. Imagine a fortified barracks where soldiers live, right? Nobody usually goes in there cocky with a gun threatening people, right? Because why? Because it's full of soldiers. And this is what the, the peace will do in your heart. It, it's like the 82nd Airborne lives in your heart. It's like the 101st Airborne. It's like the 1st Tank Division. It's like the Marine Corps of God's peace lives in your heart. How? Through prayer. Through thanksgiving. Jesus rose up like a lion roaring, and nothing could stop him. Do you want the fruit of the Christian life? Do you want it? Do you want peace that surpasses understanding? Do you want to see the face of God? then sow in the garden of prayer. Bury yourself there and watch what rises up. Come kneel here and see the blood-stained dirt where Jesus knelt. Take up his vulnerable, self-denouncing prayer. Make it yours. And keep your eyes on heaven where true help and true comfort always comes from. Jesus didn't forge a path around temptation. He didn't forge a path around sin, around sorrow, around suffering, around the cross, or around death itself. He forged a path right through the middle. He forged a path through it. In yourself, you will go astray, you will flee, you will sleep. Wake up, brothers and sisters. Choose life. Choose the garden of prayer. Choose Christ. Wake up. Follow Jesus into the garden of prayer and through it to his victory. Let Jesus name your cross by his word. Go to the garden of prayer to gather the strength to bear it and bear it. He did so you can. Come to the garden of prayer where his will supersedes yours, his strength supersedes yours, where his victory supersedes your defeat. And there... 
kneeling, the blood-stained dirt all around you, say, Abba, Father, thank you. And amen.